I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and other mediums. Fans of crime noir will especially enjoy today's guest, storyteller Paul A. Schmidt from Copenhagen, Denmark. His latest work is Stiletto No. 1, Officer Down, the first of three parts being published on April 3rd through Lion Forge. Polly explains the basic plot and the character profiles of detectives Alphonse and Maynard. They both appeared in his previous work, The Devil's Concubine, and Polly explains his illustration technique and how it differs from his previous work. You may know Polly's work as an artist on the Christmas Kevich Pen comic series, Thomas Alsop, published by Boom Studios back in 2014. Polly tells how he first met Chris at the Mocha Arts Festival and eventually partnered with him on Thomas Alsop. Polly is also a podcast host, and I ask about his 10-part series, Comics for Beginners, which he developed to assist comic creators through the process of making comics. And he also has a second ongoing podcast in Danish called Plotcast, which he has conversations with local writers about writing. This episode is sponsored by The Comic Book Shop at 1855 Marsh Road in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. My conversation with Polly was recorded back in January, so some of the shows we talk about had yet to debut, so just keep that in mind. So join us as we begin our conversation discussing Polly's favorite noir films and the must-see experimental hippie village of Christiania. Here now, on Creator Talks. Allie, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm always impressed. Whenever uh, we watch a show on Netflix, my wife and I, and it's a foreign film, we're impressed with how well, wherever you are in the world, outside the U.S., people speak English. You know, and we can, we're lucky <laughs> in this country if we know one other language, you know, maybe something we mm. picked up in school. But overseas it just seems like everybody is very comfortable everybody speaks it you don't have to well how do i communicate when i go overseas do you speak multiple languages well you can say i do because i also speak english but uh we uh, we are taught english and german in school i think now they've changed it so you can choose if you want french or german but something like spanish i'm sure a lot of americans will speak that we rarely do. The main reason why people, at least in my part of the world, speak good English is because we've seen all the uh, all the movies coming from over there. We watch Netflix as well. So I guess that's where it comes in. Uh, it's not so much school as it is just watching uh, U.S. films and listening to American music or podcasts or whatever. I find myself listening to hours and hours and hours of people discussing and debating in American all day long. So... Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> that's no, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Some smart people uh, over there as well. It's not all your fearless leader speaking out. So yes. <laughs> well, you mentioned films, and I was wondering, like, what are you watching on Netflix that I might be interested in? Uh, for example, I just finished a series with my wife called Border Town. It's actually from Finland. Oh wow. I have not uh, heard of that. Oh, it was excellent. It was one of the rated one of their best series in the country. So, second season's coming up next month. And subtitles don't bother us. I mean, I'd rather hear the native language of the people speaking. Who knows? Maybe I'll pick something up through osmosis. But I want right. to hear the emotion in that actor's voice. Now, what I do, which is ridiculous, I'll turn up the volume. 
and then I'll block the subtitles. My wife's like, why are you turning up the volume? You can't understand what they're saying anyway. I said, I don't know. <laughs> it's just force of habit. And block the subtitles as well? Well, yeah, accidentally the volume bar oh, okay. blocks oh, the subtitle yeah. now. We were watching this show, and two of the detectives um, get into a relationship, and they're having intercourse. And just then, my seven-year-old starts to walk into the bedroom, and he's supposed to be in bed. And we're like, oh, no. And my wife hits the pause button real quick, and she didn't see this. But the logo for the show, Border Town, pops up and blocks the bodies. And I said to my oh, wife, wow. I said, way to go, That's logo. Smart. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it was intentional, but it just went boop. Oh, yes, right. son. <laughs> but... I digress. Is there anything you would recommend? Well, actually, I am looking forward to the next season of True Detective coming out. Obviously, I'm into that whole noir thing. I think the first season of True Detective was some of the best TV I've ever seen. We do have Netflix. I'm referencing now, it comes to mind, some HBO series. Also, Sharp Objects with Amy Adams is really great. little southern set murder mystery with just a really screwed up main character. It's pretty amazing. And it's short. I like that you don't sign up for, I mean, and I haven't even watched Game of Thrones yet because it's like, oh, come on. How many <laughs> hundreds of hours are you expecting me to sink into this thing? And will it ever come to a satisfying conclusion? So I tend to stay away from big TV series until it, they're done. <laughs> or at least I have some very, very reliable people recommend them to me because watching eight episodes of some show and then realizing, well, this has gone off the rails. This is not going anywhere. That's too bad. So I like that HBO has started to make these shorter series. I also watched the Polish series in the same vein of like neo-noir. I don't know if you've ever seen the Danish movie Pusher from the mid-90s. No, I haven't. That's a great film. If you ever want to see a good Danish crime movie, that's the one. It hasn't been topped since. And this Polish show called Blinded by the Lights, I think it's eight episodes and it's uh, set in Warsaw. And it's this uh, really strange, poetic, extremely unpleasant and violent crime series about a guy who was basically like the pizza delivery man for cocaine to these terrible people in, in Warsaw. It's a strange, strange and somewhat disturbing show. But in the crime noir genre, if you're into that, that's a good recommendation. Those are some of the two latest I've seen, Sharp Objects and Blinded by the Lights. Yeah, we're a couple of episodes into Sharp Objects, so that's something we're going to finish up for sure, yeah. And True Detective, I, I love the first season. Not so much the second, but the first one I really liked. Sometimes when you have a success on your hands, uh, you will feel the pressure to follow it up with something just as good. And I think that's what happened with season two of True Detective, because it didn't seem planned out all that much. It just seemed like... Oh, shoot, we have to figure something out really quick because they're <laughs> expecting a season two of this thing. I think season one has probably been brewing in his mind for a decade or something like that. Well, I hear good buzz about season three, and it's starting Sunday here, so I'm looking forward to it. Now, you're in Copenhagen? I am in Copenhagen, yeah. Copenhagen, Denmark. My wife and I have decided at some point we're going to get to Europe. We made a pact once the kids are older because I've never been. I know she's been to Spain, but I've never been there. If I get to Denmark, like what kind of places do you think I should go? And I like off the beaten path. I'm not into touristy places. I like to just kind of get down with the locals and enjoy what they enjoy. The great thing about Copenhagen is it's very safe and walkable. And it's very, uh, you can also rent bikes and just bike around the city. I mean, I bike every day and so does everybody else, it seems. So that's one thing I would certainly recommend. And then we also have the free city of Christiania. I think it was 71, 72 or something like that. 
this old army barracks that has been abandoned was taken over by these, uh, what do you call them? Not a commune, not hoarders. Oh, squatters? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, hippie squatters just moved in and took it over. And the politicians were kind of uh, slow to intervene. And then the, the thing just grew. And at some point, they've been here for decades now. We can't really kick them out. So now it's like the little exception to the rule where uh, people sell uh, hash on the streets like it was cookies. And um, it's just a trashy place full of graffiti. But there's nice people there. And it's just it's a really strange like social experiment because every city has areas where people less fortunate than, than, than you and I maybe tend to congregate. And uh, Christiania is kind of a place where everybody is, is kind of welcome. Even the most drunk and disorderly people are, are sort of welcome there. So it's a really uh, funky place to visit. And in no ways, I mean, I'm, I'm making it sound like it's a rowdy, uh, unsafe place. That's not the case. It's just in the rest of the country, smoking weed is not permitted. But there, nobody tends to do anything about it. So it's, it's like a weird, and also if you're into architecture, because they built it in these old army barracks and people just built, they started building their own houses. There's a canal there. So like a, a little park down to like the river and people built these weird, weird houses that they would never be allowed because of zoning laws and whatnot to build anywhere else. So I would definitely recommend spending a summer afternoon just hanging out there and sitting outside and having a beer and looking at all these weird people walking around. It's probably one of the biggest tourist attractions of Copenhagen, but I think for good reason, because you don't really find anything like that anywhere else in the world, I think. Yeah, that's very different. I like that. That is definitely something that you wouldn't expect to see and expect tourists to go to. Sure. And take a canal tour. That's also a very touristy thing, but it gives you a nice view of the layout of the city and you can hop on and hop off anywhere you want. But definitely go in the in the summertime or spring. Winter can be long and bleak. What about the cuisine? What kind of food should I try? I wouldn't necessarily recommend the Danish cuisine for anything, but um, <laughs> okay. but we do have this tradition of eating more dark rye bread. And so old-timey restaurants will often serve these uh, open sandwiches where it's just a bunch of stuff piled on to like could be shrimp or fish or or uh, meatballs or, or whatever, just piled on a piece of dark bread. And that's the one thing I'm always missing when I'm in the U.S. for a longer spell is that it just feels like the white bread that you guys eat. It doesn't make you as full as the darker rye bread. But other than that, I don't really... I don't really miss the, the Danish cuisine much, I must say. <laughs> I read that the national dish is fried pork, and it's on the interwebs, so it must be true. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. yeah. Every, everything with pork in it, we seem to uh, to enjoy. Well, I haven't had breakfast yet, so uh, let's get no, off let's food. Talk, stop talking about food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, when I saw your book, uh, the one we're going to talk about, Stiletto, number one, Officer Down, at first, the name didn't ring a bell. Your name didn't ring a bell. And then as I was digging into my research, I'm like, wait a minute. I've read your stuff before. I read the uh, Thomas uh, Alsop that uh, Chris Miskevich wrote. I met him at a con. He was in Baltimore. I was introduced through Dean Haspel to him. And I looked for the books and bought as many as I could while I was at the con and read the whole series. And some of my listeners are probably familiar with it. They're certainly familiar with Boom uh, Studios that published it. And I read that in USA Today, it was written up and considered like the best miniseries of the year. So that's some pretty high praise. It certainly is, yeah. So tell me, how did you get the gig with Chris back in like 2011? 
How'd you guys meet up? We met at the first U.S. con I ever went to, the MoCA Arts Festival in New York. And funny you mentioned Dean Haspiel because he was kind of the intermediate. I kept asking people, uh, showing them my stuff and talking to people at the con, and several people mentioned Dean Haspiel. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I'll go over and, and introduce myself. And I remember walking across the con floor and blocking my way was Chris Miscavige dumping a pile of books and saying, hey, I'm Chris. And then we started talking uh, and we found out we had similar tastes and uh, sensibilities. And I remember that you're not going to believe this, but he pitched me. Chris doesn't even believe it. He thinks he did this much later. But I remember that he pitched me the story for Thomas Alsop on the con floor within like half an hour after we met each other. I didn't think at the time that it had anything to do with me. It just sounded like a really great story that he was working on. He was looking at my art, obviously, actually the art for Stiletto that I had with me. My book, The Devil's Concubine, was coming out from IDW, which is a self-contained graphic novel. And I had created this sort of spin-off of uh, The Devil's Concubine. It's also a self-contained book. But if you have read the, uh, the Devil's Concubine, which no one has, I can tell you, but if you had read that, you would recognize some of the people in it. So the two main detectives from Stiletto appear in The Devil's Concubine. But it's a very different uh, style and tone. And it's a completely different story. You could read each of them separately. But I had that with me and, and was showing that to Chris. And um, he gave me a copy of a collection that he'd made called Everywhere. He had printed up one of the stories. And we were just talking, talking, talking for like an hour or something. And he gave me his card and we split up and I walked over to, there was a booth there with some of the Danish creators and I read his book and it was great writing. And I, I texted him like five minutes later, I'm in because he wanted to do one of these everywhere episodes uh, with me. So we started pretty much working together on, on that. He was smart enough to throw something my way that he felt I would be into, so he he wrote this little crime story about a, a heist gone wrong and fish falling from the sky. You can find that online if you Google uh, fish everywhere with an exclamation point at the end. I'm sure you'll find it if you put my name or Chris's into it as well. So yeah, we, we started out with that, but he kept coming back to this Thomas Alsop character. And uh, I was like, why do you keep pitching this to me? I'm, I'm sure you want, you know, a native on this. It's a very New York based story it, like, it reeks of new york i'm from copenhagen denmark we i mean we have fewer people living in the entire country than are living on the island of manhattan it's just weird that he would want this danish guy to be involved with this book but he was very insistent and, and his writing is great and so we took a shot at it and, and created the first issue on spec and pitched that to boom at uh, sdcc i think a year after 2012, I think. For me, I've been a freelancer now and creating comics and writing and, and drawing freelance gigs and illustration work and all, that, all this sort of stuff for 20 years. So it's my 21st year of being full freelance now. Even though I wanted to create comics, all the comics that I loved were from the US. Uh, I wasn't that much into the, the whole European scene or Danish scenes, if there is such a thing. But I was very inspired by stuff like Sin City or Hellboy or these kinds of books, um, Criminal, uh, 100 Bullets. Uh, these types of things really appealed to me. So finally getting my act together and going over to the U.S. for the con, it felt like I'd been in a box for 10 years and then somebody had finally taken the lid off. 
And I'm like, whoa, look, wow, <laughs> a comics industry, wow, because we don't have anything like that over here. So yeah, I'm glad Chris insisted, and it was a great experience working with him on that book. And that's available too in two trade paperbacks. You can find it on Amazon or, or whatever. You've read both of them, I assume. I have actually individual issues. I went and bought those right away. The, I was at Baltimore, so I was just like, where can I find these? So I started digging them up that way. Chris is a good salesman. These yes, yes. So, and Dean's a, a good friend as well. Dean did a, a variant cover of the first issue. So we had two variant covers created, and, and one was Dean, kind of Chris's mentor and longtime friend. The person we got to do the other one was Peter Snipier, who's my friend and mentor. I sat uh, at a studio with him for 12 years, and he's the one who helped me for the first many years of my career to become the artist that I am today. I was always trying to copy him. He's worked in the U.S. industry as well. Uh, Books of Magic did some work on Tarzan with another Dane, Teddy Christensen. He worked on Preacher and A God Somewhere, which is a really great graphic novel. He's been working in the U.S. industry for many years, and I was always looking at him sitting there chained to his desk day in and day out, working on these monthly issues. So that always seemed like a very harrowing task for me. I never figured that I would be working on a book like that ever. I like creating comics, but I like doing it at my own pace. I've done it for a while. It's like riding a motorbike in in traffic. Not that I would know, but (laughs) that's what I imagine. That you're always like, you have to be three steps ahead all the time. And like, oh, that truck up there seems to be passing and I have to scoot around that. And I mean, if you crash, it's it's terrible. Get one behind one day with these monthlies, you're, you're screwed. I mean, you have to be very, very focused and concentrated and think ahead for quite a long time. And it's really grueling, grueling work. Are you still working out of Gimmel Studio? I moved out of there for a while. I thought it was time to take the training wheels off. And uh, I wanted to write more. And everyone there was, was happy doing illustration work. And I was deeply frustrated with it and wanted to do something else. So for a long while after I quit my studio and didn't know where else to go. And I found a studio full of strangers that was very different from what I came from. And I started saying yes to things that I hadn't done before. If somebody asked me to do something and I had done it before, I turned it down. So just to try to force myself in a different direction, which among other things led me to go to that Mocha Festival and also uh, led me to uh, to take a, a master class in screenwriting at the Danish Film School. So have I done this before? No, great, then I'm doing it. It's just to force myself out of the rut that I was in. Could be that I was also pushing 40, but you never know where these things came from. I'm at a studio in, in the same part of town. Nowadays, I tend to just keep pretty much to myself. I have my own office where I can close the door. So if I'm doing a podcast or taping a video or just writing or whatever, I can just stay in my room. But if I want to chat, I can walk into the kitchen or go bother some of the other people trying to work at the studio. But I found out that sitting in an open space with other creators who were drawing, while it was certainly a very enriching and a great learning experience, I tend to, I'm, I'm a chatterbox, as you can probably tell. So uh, <laughs> I tend to get tangled up in conversation all day if I if I'm not careful. Well, as a freelancer and having a family, how do you conduct your business hours? Like do you set aside time? Do you prefer mornings versus evenings? How do you like to schedule your time? When we didn't have kids, I would sleep. Uh, I would set my alarm for about 9 and then I would wake up at about 11 and uh, <laughs> after snoozing for 2 hours and then I would start my day just hating myself and thinking I'm a total loser. Why can't I get out of bed in the morning? What is this? This is terrible. 
And then I would go to the studio and get a cup of coffee and chat with friends and maybe check my email. And, and then it was lunchtime and I, would, I wouldn't get to work until like one in the afternoon. And then I would work until maybe eight or nine, eat at the studio and then come back sometime later. But when we had kids, we had our first daughter, she had to be at her, it isn't kindergarten, it's younger than that. They actually start when they're one. So uh, she started in this daycare when she was one. So once she was dropped off, I'm like, wow, it's only eight o'clock or nine o'clock in the morning and I'm, I'm already awake. And I've been awake for hours. <laughs> And now I can go to my studio and actually have a full day ahead of me, which is great. If nothing else, as a productivity tool, I would definitely recommend having kids because they wake you up in the morning and you get out and you have to put on pants and leave. And once I've dropped them off at school, I'll go to my studio. And it's never a debate for me whether to go to work or stay home because I'm already halfway there. I'm on my bike. I'm dressed. I've brushed my teeth. I've had breakfast. I'm out the door. I just go. And then, of course, if I have to pick up the kids, then I have to leave at like 3.30 or 4. But now they're uh, 9 and 13, so they can even fix themselves a snack or, or watch Netflix till their eyes bleed or whatever they do when I'm not <laughs> here. But they can take care of themselves for a couple hours. So I basically just have to get home and fix them some dinner at some point. That's what works for me. But I think in answer to your question about w whether it's best to work in the morning or in the night or whatever, I would say just figure out what works for you and do more of that. Try to make it as hard for you as possible to do the things that you shouldn't be doing and to make it as easy as possible to do the things that you should be doing. So like I said, going to work, it, I don't debate myself in the morning whether to go into the studio or not. I just go and I usually get something done. Another productivity trick, if you want to call it that. My experience is that if the days where I've planned ahead and put a little sticky note on my desk, like these are the three things I need to get done tomorrow. Those are the most productive days because then when I get in the morning, it's not like, oh, should I work on that book or should I update my web page or should I blog or something or should I reach out to somebody and try to drum up some work or a project or brainstorm or research or whatever. What do I want to do? Those mornings where I don't have anything planned out, those are the mornings that tend to disappear into Facebook or whatever. Plan ahead a little bit so I know once I get to the studio, oh, that's what I'm doing. Great. Yesterday, Pala was smart enough to let today Pala know what to do. That's great. So I'll just... <laughs> I'll just take his advice and not listen to today better because he's an idiot. So Well, your system is working because you produced Stiletto, number one, Officer Down. Right, and as right. you said earlier, that was a spinoff of The Devil's Concubine. This is a one-and-done story. It's all self-contained within that one issue. It's 48 pages? It's a three-issue miniseries. So there will be three issues of 48 pages coming out. And I think that the way they split it up was the same way I had divided it into three parts when it came out in Denmark as a full self-contained graphic novel. So I'm really glad we got to that point because the last frame of the first issue for the U.S. market is what's going to propel you into the next one. And you need to get to that point. Without any spoilers, I can tell the listeners for the first many, many pages, it looks like a pretty standard run-of-the-mill buddy cop movie with a lot of banter and a lot of cliches and references to old crime movies like Bullet and Serpico and, and whatnot. I think once you hit the last couple of pages, you will realize that, oh, this is going in a completely different direction than I thought it was. That's the thing about twists. You need to use them very carefully. <laughs> you can't just twist everything around. In order to make an effective twist, you need to know the cliches and the tropes that exist within the genre. 
and then play off of those and then you can introduce a twist. Well, I'm glad you cleared up the duration of the story because looking at it and what Lionforge is trying to do is they say they're trying to present more fulfilling reader experiences through serialized singles. I guess this is more akin to something like Sherlock or some other television series on Netflix where it's shorter. It's not like a long episode, 12 season. It might be like three and it's longer stories per episode. That's pretty much what you have here. Right, uh, so right. it is more fulfilling than that. It's not going to be a long series. It'll be done in three. So it's a self-contained story that you need those three issues and then you're done. We had a chance to expand on the contents a little bit because for the Danish edition, it was a 120-page book. So for this one, we managed to uh, create new pages. I worked with editor Greg Tamborello to fill in some of the gaps and help with clarity and pacing. So it's a longer book. So if there are any Danes listening to this that already have the book and like, oh, I've read that. No, you haven't. Because uh, there's like back matter and sketchbook stuff and extra materials. So you'll definitely get your money's worth if you pick up the U.S. version. And you did mention that it's a different look from The Devil's Concubine. I did notice that was a lot brighter, and this is much oh, yeah. more somber and darker. It almost looks like watercolor. Yeah, it is watercolor. It's uh, I use uh, really neat fluid watercolors called uh, Ecoline. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a specific kind of coloring that goes along with it. All of it is kind of doused with these uh, yellowish, grayish, greenish tones. And it looks like there's smog all over the city at all times, uh, even indoors. So it has that uh, a special kind of feel to it. But then because it's a cop story, I mean, the, and the archetypical cop color would, of course, be blue, right? So I decided very early on that I wouldn't use the color blue at all. So I only use the color blue for flashbacks and dream sequences and things that are not real, something like that, along those lines. So every time the, the blue turns up, you're like, oh, wait, there's something there that I need to pay attention to because that's not happening at this moment. So that's one way of, of using color to tell the story. But yeah, with The Devil's Concubine, I was, like I said, I was, I was sitting next to Peter Snipia and he is just the master of the quill and ink. I so wanted to be like that. And I always felt like that's the real cartoonist way. And after trying that, that, method on for sides for years uh, i just i uh, realized that i liked some of my sketch work even better there is a sketchbook in the back of the devil's concubine where you can also find some of the, the main characters in stiletto and i was looking at that and like wait a minute that's actually kind of neat and it's done so much faster and it's much looser and more jazzy feel to it than just trying to be so meticulously inked like peter sniper or dean haspiel for that matter where I'm a very fast artist. So once I start drawing, my hand will just go like crazy. And, and I can't do that with traditional inks because with traditional inks, you have to be very slow and meticulous in where you put the lines. You have to be very precise. And I'm not like that at all. I'm like, I'm like the Muppet guy with the drums, right? When <laughs> I'm drawing. So yeah, exactly. So that wouldn't work for me. Uh, you need to be much more of a, like a serene Jedi master in order to pr produce that kind of art. And I can't really, I, I can, but it just takes me longer because I make mistakes and I have to correct them and then I make mistakes again and then I have to correct them. So like, I don't know how many liters of uh, correction ink I used on The Devil's Concubine, but it was a lot, I can tell you. Whereas with Stiletto, I inked the whole thing in pencil. It frees me up in a way that I, I cannot overstate is the fact that inking in pencil, it just frees me up so much. I'm not afraid of making mistakes because, you know, I can always erase it. But I rarely do make mistakes. I rarely use the eraser. 
but just knowing that I can, it just frees me up to do whatever I want. And the same with the watercolor. Uh, the Devil's Concubine is colored traditionally with on the computer in Photoshop and uh, with gradients and all that. But with the uh, with the watercolor for stiletto, I, I start out just splashing paint on the pages and I don't care at all. <laughs> when I'm in the flow, I just see what happens. Lucky accidents occur. And if a mistake occurs, I'm like, okay, I'll fix it in Photoshop. But it, it just frees me up a lot more. And also when I do fix up things in Photoshop, 90% of it is already there because I've done the watercolor. With Stiletto, I did it all in the tone that you, pretty much all of it in the tone of the watercolor that you see on the page. With Thomas Alsop, I did it all in grayscale and then added color in Photoshop. But it's it's hand painted all of it. It looks great. And it really speaks to this kind of story, this crime story. And the two detectives come from The Devil's Concubine. They were in that story. Tell me about those two characters that we're going to learn about in this story. The kind of a profile of each. It's young cop and old cop. Classic trope. Seen it many times in films like Lethal Weapon or whatever. So it's Alphonse is the younger, cool cop in the turtleneck. Drives the same car as Steve McQueen and Bullet. At least that's what I thought until somebody corrected me. But that was, that was kind of the vibe I was going for. He tends to take things uh, as they come. Pretty easygoing. He's very charming and uh, doesn't mind that things don't always go according to plan. He just kind of goes with the flow. But he's, uh, he's a very dedicated and good cop where uh, his partner Maynard is uh, a little bit older. Certainly more, uh, more worn world weary. Has a bitching wife at home and kids and obligations and is always feeling like he's two steps behind behind and is always afraid that things are going to go wrong. So he's a much more uh, neurotic. They're very different in their approach to the whole uh, investigation, which I think is interesting. And in the book, they, uh, I mean, the inciting incident is an homage to Bullet. So it's a witness being protected at, at a hotel location and a shooter comes and kills both the officers who are taking care of the witness and the witness disappears. In come Maynard and, and Alphonse trying to solve these murders, and they find out that the only way that the shooter could have known that this witness and these cops were at this hotel was because there's a leak inside the police department who they don't know who is, but they know he operates under the name Stiletto, hence the name of the book. So that's pretty much the setup for the story, and I, I don't think I can give away much else. I mean... Maybe you could pitch in if you think there's something I'm missing here, but uh, I don't want to spoil it for people. Can they really trust anyone during this investigation? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Least of all themselves. And also we have the internal division, I call them, internal affairs, breathing down the neck and wanting to take over the investigation. And that's one of the worries that Maynard has, obviously, that they're going to come in and take over. He also wants to find out who's behind these murders and doesn't want to let anybody else handle it. So you're ahead. So all three parts, you finish them? Yeah, all done. So it's in the pipeline. I think the first two have been lettered and uh, just missing the, the last one, I think. It's on schedule and coming out. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing it hit the U.S. market and because it, I've had this book in my bag and showed it at Comic-Cons for years now. And I'm like, hey, would somebody please pick this up? Because I really think that it's a very, very solid crime thriller. I always felt like an odd man out in Denmark for creating these types of stories. Don't know how much you know about the European album tradition, but there's not a lot of what I'm into, the hard-boiled noir. And I did a signing for Thomas Alsop at a store in Seattle. 
I forget the name of it, and it's closed down anyway. It's called it was called Xanadu. Anyway, there was a big shelf that just said crime comics. And I was looking at this shelf and I said to the the owner of the establishment, you know what? If there was a shelf of crime comics in a Danish comic store for Danish crime comics, there would be two books on that shelf. <laughs> and my name would be on both of them. Uh, again, it feels like coming home sometimes when I enter a U.S. comics shelf. I'm like, yes, this is what comics are about. Oh, also, a lot of people flying around with the underwear on the outside and all that. But I'm not just praising on every U.S. comic, obviously. But I've been reading way more of that than probably a lot of my European peers. When you do visit the U.S., do you pack up a lot of books when you come over? Did you do buy stuff when you're over here, or do you just get it online? I try not to, but it's hard when you're meeting somebody nice at a convention. You want to pitch in, you want to support them, and you want to get their books. Usually, if I'm by myself, I usually fly over with hand luggage and have to check it on the way back because I just, ah, I did it again. That's the problem I have when I go to cons. Like, I want to support people. I didn't plan to buy all those books, but I also didn't know I was going to meet all those people. So next thing you know, I'm trying to find creative ways to pack up all my stuff to get back on the plane. <laughs> I pack minimally in terms of clothes so I can just wash things if I'm going to be someplace for a long period of time. i got to leave room for stuff. You know? <laughs> Luckily, I'm always carrying my own books to give away as well, or that leaves a little room in the bag. So I've been uh, bringing the family a lot when we come over. I would go to the San Diego Comic-Con maybe and my wife and kids would tag along and spend most of the time at the pool and then we could do like a three-week drive or go elsewhere. And also after meeting Chris and meeting Dean and all these nice people at the Mocha Festival, I started going to conventions a lot more and meeting people. And for example, at SDCC, I kept meeting these people. I always said, oh, so where are you based? And they all said Portland. And I'm like, oh, Portland, what's up there? I need to go to Portland. And then I started asking around and found out there was a studio there. So I visited that and came back a couple of years later and sat and worked for two, three weeks or something like that when I was doing Thomas Alsop. Also trying to learn and find out what's this whole scene look like and what are people doing and what are the conversations floating around in the room. And I've learned a ton from doing that, both at Dean's studio in Brooklyn and Periscope in Portland. I like taking these longer spells and bringing some work with me. I'm really bad at taking time off. Vacation always seemed like a total detour for me. But uh, if we can take a longer trip and I can find you know, a comic store, a signing or a studio visit or, you know, even grabbing a coffee with another creator that I've only previously known online or something like that. That's really great. It's just, it's very invigorating to meet people both virtually like this, but also in real life in all these cities across the globe. It's really great talking to you. You are yourself a podcaster. Please share a bit about your show. I have two shows. One is not being updated uh, at the moment. I created this uh, site called comicsforbeginners.com because I wanted to share some of these experiences and some of the things that I've learned about creating comics for the past 20 years. You can obviously find books about how to create comics and you can find a lot of online tutorials, but taking people from the idea to the finished page, I seemed to see there was something lacking in the market there. I had some ways of approaching it that I really wanted to share with people. So I created a 10 episode tutorial uh, online course over an hour worth of uh, material where people could in the first video hear about storytelling and then in the second one how to write a script and the third one how to create their character design and fourth one how to create panels and borders and stuff like that so layout and composition and backgrounds and coloring and all that so from beginning to finish page 
And as you probably know, with all these uh, courses and online uh, membership sites and whatnot on, online, you tend to have something around the thing. So I, of course, started blogging and started doing podcasts when I was at Comic-Cons or whatever and meeting some creator that I thought had an interesting perspective. I would interview them and get them on my uh, my show. So those are, are available in English. But then I also do a monthly podcast in Danish which is an hour-long conversation with a writer once a month. And that's also very selfishly to learn about the craft because I find this very, very interesting. When I was at the film school, we were at school for a week out of the, the month. I was loving these conversations that we were having about how to create interesting characters or meaningful imagery or, you know, a great character arc or conflict in scenes and whatnot. The whole craft thing, just, it interests me to no end. So... Once that course ended, it was a year-long uh, masterclass. But once that ended, I was like, how do I continue this conversation going forward? And I figured a podcast would be a great way to both learn a lot myself. Like you could say it is basically a one-hour consultancy class for me to learn about how this writer uh, works. And then also, hopefully, it benefits a lot of other people because they can listen in on the conversation. Well, this transitions nicely into my fun questions because with doing all of this, your art, the podcast the website. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation when you have the time? <laughs> well, yeah, as I maybe alluded to, I'm a bit of a workaholic. I'm not really good at rest and relaxation, but I do like hiking. Not that I do that on a weekly basis or even a, a monthly basis. My wife and kids uh, and I took a, a two-month trip to Canada this spring, and, uh, and we did a lot of just walking in the mountains and stuff. That was great. If I had to pick one that I had to do, I would pick that other than watching stupid Netflix shows and HBO <laughs> shows, as I've also alluded to. But yeah, I don't have any weird hobbies like that. What I like best is to be working on something. That's one of the reasons why Chris and I are great friends and collaborators. He came to Denmark and we had dinner at a restaurant in Christiania, actually, that I also talked about. And he said the words, I'll never forget. He said, I just want to make stuff. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, that's exactly what I want. That's how I feel. I just want to make stuff. I don't care if it's a YA novel or a crime novel or a comic or a kid's book or a podcast even. I just want to make stuff and put it out into the world and hopefully make a difference for somebody. But I'm all over the place and all over the map in terms of storytelling. But I, I consider myself a storyteller more than a writer or an artist. Think back to birthdays that you've had. Which birthday was your favorite or stands out in your memory and why? My birthday's in July. So uh, I remember I was at San Diego Comic-Con with Chris and hanging out and my kids phoned in through the iPad from home. They sang happy birthday on the iPad. That was a tearjerker moment because I was sitting in San Diego and it was very late at night for them or something like that. I, I can never work out the time difference. That was certainly memorable, but uh, I was nowhere near my family or anything like that. But it was a nice gesture for them to sing the birthday song through the iPad. That's yeah. really nice. Now, when you think back to what we have here, middle school, 12, 14 years of age, a lot of kids put posters and pictures up on their bedroom walls. What did you have on your bedroom walls? Did you hang posters or pictures, and what were they? Yeah, I think I, I must have. Probably Star Wars. That seemed to have filled my entire creative input for many, many years. I've gone off it a little bit in, the, in later years. But yeah, for sure. I remember having the Return of the Jedi poster up on my wall, for sure. As probably anyone my age with my chromosomes, 
I was deeply in love with uh, Carrie Fisher as uh, as Princess Leia. So she was up there in a golden bikini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Star Wars was one of my favorites. I have a bunch of those posters I would hang up. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah that's, I still have them. I get those moments at Comic Cons where I see like a Drew San Indiana Jones poster uh-huh. in huge size. It takes me right back immediately. I cannot just not care about that. There's plenty of things not to care about. <laughs> <laughs> at, a, at a Comic-Con. But those old things, they just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's amazing. A poster of a movie or a comic, when I see it, it brings back a lot of memories. Like, I can remember where I read a book, how old I was. Right. Like, you know, like, like Maybe it was an X-Men book I read when my sister was taking ballet classes when I was a kid. I can put myself back in that place. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, It's a time machine. This is the desert island question. If you were stuck on a desert island... And for pleasure, you could only have one book. It, wow. They can be related. It could be like a series of books if they're related. Let's be fair. Okay. What would that book be? Oh, I wish you had prepared me for these questions. Um, That's no fun. Uh, <laughs> maybe. If you like long, awkward pauses in your podcast, I'm sure that's great. What would I bring? I think there's one thing I keep going back to, and that's Raymond Chandler's uh, Marlowe books, just because he has just a great voice. I've started writing a, a series of crime books for the Danish market, at least until now. I do the first person, very cynical main character, and it's just so much fun. Very Chandler-esque. That's a really good choice. I do like those. Yeah. Now, this is a hypothetical question. If someone were to make an action figure of you... <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Think about the kind of person you are. What would be your accessory? It's no fun to say a laptop, right? It has to be a little bit more than that. Well, if I could just choose, I'll, I'll have the hoverboard from Back to the Future, <laughs> the future. Part 2. I mean, why not? Let's <laughs> <laughs> go hog wild. Why not? Instead of an action figure, right? It doesn't have, have right. anything to do with my personal life, which is not at all excruciatingly dull, I can tell you. So. <laughs> Well, when things are a little dull and you can rest and relax, what is your beverage of choice? Cold draft beer, nothing too hoppy. That's the one moment where you feel like, oh, I'm glad this is not available every day. Once you've had a long, hard day at the office and you sit down with a friend and have that first sip of that cold beer at a cafe somewhere, that's, oh, that's wonderful. And we can drink outside in Copenhagen as well, cafes with tables outside in the summertime. That's That would be a great way of relaxing. But other than that, I always have a cup of coffee going. Now, you're a freelancer, and I'm wondering, what was the oddest job you ever had until you decided to go into freelancing? Well, I really never really had any kind of real job other than uh, internships or, or short periods of just manual labor jobs, packing stuff up at some warehouse, putting things in crates and taping it together, just boring stuff like that. I used to deliver, uh, I drove around with a guy in a big uh, Coke truck, the beverage, not the uh, the drug, uh, <laughs> all that, but <laughs> it would be a little bit too liberal maybe if we had like, big trucks of Coke delivering it here. But yeah, that was a weird job. You're walking into all these different little shops with foreign shop owners, trying to balance these big crates of Coca-Cola down their rickety old stairs to their basement or whatever their warehouse was that was a bit weird because i'm this geeky intellectual guy with scrawny arms and and everyone else at that job was like big brawny types and yeah that was weird we know that you write crime noir crime books and in your opinion what is the best crime noir film ever made and why wow I can tell you what I think the best film ever made is, and that's Blade Runner, and you could call that a crime noir. So for many years, I thought I was into science fiction because my favorite movie was Blade Runner, but it's not really 
a science fiction movie and people are welcome to uh, disagree but uh, it's a very crime noirish tale for sure I would also say Angel Heart with Mickey Rourke Alan Parker film from the 80s that's an amazing uh, noir movie The Third Man would be another great one that I've seen yes oldie but goodie you haven't seen Angel Heart no I've seen Blade wow. Runner and I've seen The You're Third Man treatment. that's always good yeah yeah. Well, that's why I ask these questions, because I want to know <laughs> what, I sh- what I should be seeing, what I've missed. <laughs> I mean, I do watch streaming new series, but I enjoy going back and watching films that I'm just so far behind that are must-watching. Like, right. Right. I was telling my wife, I was watching uh, an old film with Humphrey Bogart, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Right. And I'd never seen it before. And he goes into the mountain with this old prospector, another guy in Mexico, to look for gold. And these Mexican bandits come up and they want their guns and they say they're the police. And Humphrey Burger says, you're the police. Show me your badges. And the guy says, badges? We don't need badges. We don't need no stink. And I said, that's where that line, we don't need no stinking badges no. came from. And I was so excited. Yeah. So like, I finally have gone to the source that was carried over into Blazing Saddles. You know? right, yeah, right. so that's a lot of fun. Don't so need no stinking badges. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a great moment. So thank you for the recommendations. Sure. I will check out Angel Heart. And back to Stiletto the first of three parts will be published on April 3rd through Lion Forge. And they will be meaty 48-page watercolored stories. So fans of crime, this is for you. Thank you so much for being on Creator Talks today. This was fun. Thank you very much for having me. And coming up next week, the all-singing, all-talking Giraffes on Horseback Salad. The strangest movie never made starring the Marx Brothers with a screenplay by Salvador Dali. The book is by Josh Frank, and he will be my guest. So please join me next week when Josh talks about his lifelong love of the Marx Brothers, putting together this book based on the original notes from Salvador Dali, and how he put together the finished movie script and brought it to life through the surrealistic illustrations of Manuela Portega. As you know, the show is available each week on Thursdays, Please subscribe so you don't miss a single episode and tell all your friends about it. And if you have time, please rate and or review on iTunes. The show is also available on Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Alexa-enabled devices, YouTube, and now on Spotify. And let me tell you how that came about. I was out one day and I was talking to a comic book buyer and I mentioned my podcast and he said, Oh, are you on Spotify? And I said, Well, no. And so I thought about that later that same day. I'm looking through my Twitter feed and I see a post from Eric of the Long Box Review, one of my favorite comic podcasts. And he posts an article about whether or not your podcast should be on Spotify. And I thought, hmm, maybe it should be. Well, I put it on Spotify. And then today I'm listening to another favorite podcast of mine, Thrash It Out, with Anthony Johnston and Brian Latendry. And they mentioned their show might be on Spotify, given that it's a very important platform to be on. And it's really gaining some ground on iTunes, so it's on Spotify now if that's how you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Pod. That's at Pod. There I also post my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. Please share yours as well. If you need to reach me with a longer communication, you can write to my email address, contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. All right, then. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Have a great weekend. Enjoy your comic books that you picked up on New Comic Book Day. And have a chance to dig into some of your favorite back issues or curl up with a nice book. Whatever you do, be good to one another and be safe. For Creator Talks, this is Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Until next time.